Okay, well, we're in number two of the um, series three investigations, and uh, that's the whole thing. I've added one in. Uh, I don't know whether I actually mentioned that last week. I, I, I drew you in by saying it was a series of six, but now we've added another one in, so there are seven. But hopefully it'll be worth it. And it's really that we had so much information, we couldn't get them all into six sessions. So we've done Noah's Ark, and uh, we're now going to be doing the Tower of Babel. So I'm going to do a little star down, so we've got a sense of progress as we go through the course. So uh, we're now on the Tower of Babel tonight, and the question that I've put really as the lead question for that, was the Tower of Babel a real place? Now, I mean, we're going to look at a number of things apart from that, but that is a, certainly a fundamental question that I would like to try and answer. I mean, a lot of these things in the Bible are quite well known, that, but, uh, but generally speaking, science, archaeology and so on has increasingly regarded them as mythical and not strictly true. Now, I would like to say to you, there is a ruin here with a pile of bricks and things that were the Tower of Babel. Unfortunately, that's pretty difficult to do, apart from the fact that present-day Iraq has been a war zone over centuries and generations, the fact that the Bible says it was actually built of bricks baked in the mud, bricks baked in the sun, indicates that there are possibly not going to be many of them left after 4,000 years. So we, we haven't actually got it. But we do have something that is almost as good. There's a hunk of rock. I mean, can, can you see what uh, is on that rock, barely. You'll see the, the inscription by the side of it that actually says what's on that rock, and you'll see that there is a sort of a, uh, a symbol there of a tower with a, a large figure of, of one of the kings uh, there beneath it. And, and that was found in the 19th century and laid in a museum somewhere, and they knew what it had on it, but nobody could decipher the hieroglyphics. You can see the hieroglyphics are pretty badly damaged on, you know, on the scripted version there. Um, but uh, now, Dr. Andrew George from the University of London, who is not a Christian, not a believer, but is an, an expert in Babylonian cuneiform, i.e. the language of Babylonia, he has managed to decipher that, uh, that, those hieroglyphics, or at least some of them. This is, uh, first of all, it's actually inscribed with the title, The Tower of the Temple of Babylon. So that sort of sounds like we're... We're, you know, we're on the right track for it. And this is uh, the quote that he's been able to decipher so far. From the upper sea, which is the Mediterranean, to the lower sea, which is the Persian Gulf, the far-flung lands and the teeming people of the uh, habit habitation I mobilised in order to construct this building. Now, I have to say, Dr George reckons that that figure by the side of it is actually Nebuchadnezzar. So if he's right about that, that's another 1,700 years after where we're talking about. But he thinks that actually Nebuchadnezzar built this building to encase the original Tower of Babel that was crumbling and falling down. So that's interesting. Certainly he comes to the conclusion, and I could have quoted other stuff from him, uh, that actually the Bible may well turn out to be a lot more true than at one point many of the researchers thought. There's a tendency to, to almost automatically discount the Bible as a factual source and almost take anything other, any other source as true where the Bible's not true. But actually they're beginning to come through that now and that's certainly his judgment on it. So uh, under the heading of the Tower of Babel, that of course is not a photograph, that is a famous painting that was done by 
I think it's Bruegel, that one, Peter Bruegel. Somebody say? Yeah, good, we got it. It's on my prompter, my, my fax man there in the front row. Uh, I'm going to look at this under seven headings, which hopefully will make so, sense as we come to it. First of all, we're going to do a little back swipe into last week after the flood. How does this connect up with the flood? What happened? It's probably about 150 years, as far as we know, between the flood and the Tower of Babel. So people multiplied and already were forming big communities and with all the issues that that... <coughs> right, so after the flood, then secondly, the first civilization. Really what Babel is, is the first recorded civilization in the Bible, when men started to get together. Thirdly, we're going to look at the scattering and the records of that, of the peoples that got scattered over the world as a result of it. Fourthly, we're going to look at language. Where did language come from? I've been talking with Oz who is from Turkey earlier, and, and you know, if you listen to Turkish, you would find that very difficult to understand. Where did these languages come from? Well, we'll uh, look at that. Fifthly, we're going to look at the birth of empires. The fact this was the first empire, but actually they are chain-linked through history. One empire tends to seed another one. The empire that conquers the last empire becomes the next empire, then gets conquered by the next empire, and so on. And you can actually join them together through history. So you could develop a theory of history based on the empires that have gone through it. Sixthly, we're going to look at the ingenuity of the ancients. Um, interesting evidence, it's not exactly direct evidence, but it certainly implies that there was a high civilization way back that suddenly appears all over the world in different places with stuff that they did that we actually can't, we can't, we can't do it. We can't even understand how they did it. So that's what we're going to look at there. And then seventhly, we're going to look at the seed of Babylon itself, that somehow it planted something. And I want to suggest to you that what was planted at Babel was spiritual. It had political consequences, but actually the essence of it was spiritual. And that spiritual seed has transmitted down through generations and history and is still running today. And actually, if you've got eyes to see, you can see it. Okay. After the flood then, first of all, well, there, there's the, our famous picture of the uh, petrified uh, ark as it lays now in the mountains of Ararat. And uh, there is evidence that they settled in the mountains, and we were looking at that last week. There is also evidence that they, it, it, was, it was a fruitful time. They weren't just sitting on their, um, uh, on their backsides. I was trying to think of a proper term to use for that, but that'll do. Um, you know, with twiddling their thumbs. They were, there is evidence that they were, they were working on crops. The, the earth now was different. Some of the crops didn't all work. Like they had. So there was a lot of crop hybridization going on, and they found all the different sort of um, uh, re residue and remains in the pollen and so on that they found from this, uh, in this area around about. New varieties of foods were developed, and so on and so on. And I, I was at an apple festival down in Chepstow, um, I don't know, a few years ago now, and somebody, uh, somebody said, I think it was somebody giving a talk on apples, said, of course, we know that apples came from the Caspian area of the world. I thought, that's interesting. That's where the ark landed. 
and it sent me on a bit of a journey. So I was looking up in, uh, you know, in Wikipedia and stuff like that. I, I, you know, I didn't do them all, but I, I, I found, if you look there, you see that the red is where the arc is, the yellow is where, I haven't tried to identify which one's which, but you see, uh, there's six fruits, they're popped all around this area. According to Wikipedia, they, all these fruits came from this immediate area round about. Now, I mean, obviously, they can't be totally accurate in that, but it's very interesting to note that. It's reckoned to be the Fertile Crescent, which is all here, was the first inhabited place where they started using these crops. So apples originated in Central Asia, pears between China and Turkey, plums around the Caucasus, wheat from Southeast Turkey. I'm having to guess a little bit, but this is all in the same area. Uh, barley, Mesopotamia, that's the, the area that we're talking about, and grapes that were southeast of the Black Sea, and so on and so on and so on. I suspect if we were to look further, we would find that all the major crops, the stock crops from which all the varieties in the world have come, have all come from this area, and probably were the work of Noah and uh, some of those that came after him as they sought to find food for a world now that was very different from the one before. We also hinted last week that there were some interesting remains. I mean, we got some that you remember at the top of the hill where it's thought the ark first landed, but then, of course, they moved down into the valley and uh, they, they found there the remains of furnaces. I'm not exactly sure where they are, but they're in that general area. You can see the rocks there. It's, it's a poor photo. So I haven't, I haven't majored on it, but it, it, this, was, this is the report that I got. They found that where they were doing, you know, um, smelting and metalwork and so on, and we've already said that they were far more advanced in this than we tend to think. There the, we talked about plant hybridization, pottery making. I mean, Noah was really busy. He lived for 300 years after the flood, so he had a, quite a busy life establishing the world after that time. The waters, we're told, assuaged, went down, and of course, as they did so, they were 5,000 foot up in the mountains, uh, the, 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 the lowlands beckoned them down. And that's really where we, we come out. You know, when they were full of mud, nobody wanted to go down to them. But as they dried slowly, as the waters ran away and drained away, so, of course, they were able to do that. The first civilization uh, we're told about in Genesis chapter 11. So, whereas in the flood, we had a lot of chapters looking at the flood, we've only got nine verses on the Tower of Babel. Well, a couple of others as well. So, I'm going to read that uh, now... Uh, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. And they said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and bitumen because they're in the valley. They're in, you know, it's all alluvial. It's a, it's a mud valley. Um, they, if they had any stone, they, they didn't know about it. I doubt that they had any much at that point. It was all under uh, feet, of, feet and feet of sediment. Uh, and they used bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. 
Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Uh, another interesting implication that God is multiple. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Come, let us go down. They, they went down. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So that is it. It's really quite concise. You see there from the picture, I put a ring around the rough area where, as far as we know, that, that place is in the mountains of Ararat. That's where the ark landed. Down in the valley there, you'll see a place that, I don't know how we pronounce that in English, I've been trying to get some clues from Oz uh, about how they pronounce it. The sea is a sea with a sedilla under it, which means that it actually should be spelt China, China, China. I mean, I'd like to make it Shinar, but it's China. But you have to say, that's pretty similar, and that is a place that is existing today uh, in modern Turkey. So that's interesting. So that, they went down to the plain. Now, if that's the right place, and I suspect it could well be, then it's around about 200 miles. So the, I, I would imagine they didn't do it in one go. They slowly, they migrated down. As the, as the land became more useful, they found themselves going down. And of course, obviously, they were seeking for rivers. They needed rivers for a water supply. So uh, maybe they didn't hang around too long. Uh, now, it said eastward, but actually that can be translated in several ways, and it can be translated from the east, which certainly, looking at the geograph ge geography of it, from the mountains of Ararat down into, I mean, that, that there in the, the pale bit is, the, is the Mesopotamia, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, the great rivers that flow today through from uh, Turkey down through Iraq and so on and out to the Persian Gulf at the other end. Uh, so they were, they were heading from the east, I suspect they were all of one language, the Bible says, because they were one language, because they were one family. It was basically Noah and his sons, although Noah, we think Noah and Shem remained up in the mountains much longer and maybe stayed all the time, but certainly some of the offspring and their descendants and so on, they all started migrating down and they were multiplying. And there are signs here that, there, that it was, there was cooperation and industry going in. In verse 3 of this passage, it said, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now, in order to do that kind of thing, you need a society that is functioning with division of labour so that some people are doing the farming and growing the food so that other people can make the bricks and build the tower. You know what I mean? That's one of the first needs of a city or a civilization or man living in community is people start to differentiate what they do. So some people are farmers and some people are builders and so on and so on. So there are signs that, this, that Babylon has got all the signs of being a civilization. And as we say, that was the first civilization. And they say, come and let us build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. So again, there was something spiritual about this tower. Why did they want to reach to the heavens? Well, the Bible is very brief about this. But again, if we look in other literature, we find some interesting implications. But there were two motives for it uh, that are given in verse 4. Then they said, let us build a city so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So the first thing they wanted to do was to, they wanted to be somebody. They wanted to put a marker down. I want to make a mark 
as a civilization, we want to show that we are the best. Of course, that has dominated the human race for generations, hasn't it, really? The desire to rise higher and be better, and so on and so on and so on. So they wanted to make a name for themselves. The second thing was that they didn't want to be scattered over the earth. God had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and replenish it. That was the initial mandate of creation and then it became the mandate that was given to Noah and his family. So God said, I want you to fill the whole earth. And they said, nah, <laughs> we're going to stay here and do what we want to do. So you can see, although brief, you get a sense of it. There's a picture of China uh, as it is today. Oh, China. Chinar. Now that is authoritative. Chinar. Okay? Good. It's not, it's not China. No, it's Chinar. Chinar. We've got that. Okay, take that. We have an, we have an expert here. Uh, okay, so now I'm going to move on now to Nimrod. Uh, because he's a quite a significant guy in all this. In Genesis 10, 8 to 10, it says, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that is why it is said, this was obviously a saying, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, there you go, Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kainar, in Shinar. Okay, that says Shinar, that's in the Bible. Uh, so, that, so really you could say all of those civilizations were scattered down Mesopotamia, down the, the valleys of the Tigris-Euphrates. So it looks like the Bible identifies Nimrod as probably the first emperor on the earth. And the whole thing, it seems, was probably led by Nimrod, at least as far as we can tell from the Bible. He was possibly of giant proportions. There are a number of references to it that indicate that. And uh, as we heard last week, there were very possibly uh, lines of giants, and we're going to see more of that next week uh, when we look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, so he was the first emperor of Babylon. Now, while I was preparing this, I've got a, an old book in my study written by a guy called Flavius Josephus, who was, a, who was a, originally a Jewish freedom fighter, and then eventually he, he sort of changed sides and became a Roman and so on and so on. But, I mean, he uh, has written a book, the, the Antiquities of the Jews, and it's really the history of the Jewish people. And I'm, I'm reading this. This is really interesting. Look, listen to what he said. I mean, this is, he's 38 to 100 AD, so it's about the time of Jesus. I mean, this is a 2,000-year-old book. So he wasn't quite back in the time of the Tower of Babel, but he was halfway there and a lot nearer to it than we are. This is, this is what he says. Now, the plain in which they first dwelt was called Shinar. God also commanded them to send colonies abroad for the thorough peopling of the earth. So that makes it pretty specific. God told them to send people out from where they were, that they might not raise seditions among themselves. So God knew that when they were together, they were trouble. Well, it's a very interesting commentary on the human race. And that, that theme is actually repeated. They might not raise seditions among themselves, but might cultivate a great part of the earth and enjoy its fruits after a plentiful manner. Well, it's quite quaint language. It is 2,000 years old, so that's okay. But they were so ill-instructed that they did not obey God. 
They imagined that the prosperity that they enjoyed was not derived from the favour of God, but their own power. How modern is that? I did it my way. You know, even if catastrophe comes upon the earth, we'll probably say we did it. We're never going to say God did it. That is so contrary to our genetic makeup as we've developed through the years. Now, it, it carries on. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. So I didn't say he was a giant, but he certainly was pretty far out there in the macho stakes. And he persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it was through his means that they were happy. How interesting. The, the real problem here was, was a deeply independent spirit. I do not want to feel like I'm beholden to God. It's not to do with God. As if it was through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage that procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny. Interesting. Seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence upon his power. How many political systems have, have started often with the highest of intentions and then end up as a tyranny and a rebellion? Oh, well, that's, I found it really interesting. He also said that he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. And you're not going to drown me, God. No, no way. But that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. Nah. You can, you, you can hear it, can't you? And that would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. How, how interesting is that? I found that from 2,000 years old manuscript, a fascinating insight, <coughs> which totally fits what the Bible says, but actually fills it out a bit more. Now, the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod. So it wasn't all Nimrod. He resonated with the hearts of the men as well. And to esteem it a piece of cowardice to submit to God. That's still true. You know, you, you, what are you, weak, literally livered, you know? And they built a tower and it grew very high, but the thickness of it was so great, and this sounds to me like an eyewitness, so he's obviously got this from somebody that saw it. It didn't seem so high, it was so wide at the base that it didn't seem as high as it actually was, proportionately. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar made of bitumen that it might not be liable to admit water. So they were, they were making a tower. So that God had said, I will never again do that. But, but they didn't really believe that, and so, of course, off they went. Now, if we look at the causes of this, I thought it was worth just summarising to analyse it. It's interesting. I mean, first cause was Nimrod. There is often an evil man or a motivated man that, is at the, you know, that changed the course of history. I mean, what would have happened in the last war without Hitler or Stalin? or You know what I mean? These guys, they, they get raised up in a time, often do huge damage. You know, Mayansi Tung, Pol Pot. There are evil men that stand above the crowd, often deeply insecure men. I mean, Hitler was a, was a, was a messed up bloke in some senses, but he did a lot of damage, uh, and they often do. So Nimrod was, was the first cause. There was also a sense of togetherness, and I put that like that because generally we think that's a really good thing. 
We want the human race to live in peace and plenty. We want everybody to be together. We want the brotherhood of man. But if you get the brotherhood of man without the fatherhood of God, then you've got a problem. I mean, that is the lesson of this. And all too often, that's exactly, that's what the UN is based on. The UN is based on the, on the brotherhood of man, but we do not, um, we do not bring God uh, into the thing. So it's interesting, isn't it? That which you think is a good thing, everybody being together, because man is corrupted the way that we are, it actually tends to work out for harm. Thirdly, there was a profound sense of independence. We do not want God bossing us about. We do not want to be accountable. I mean, much of the modern evolutionary movement in science is actually driven by a, a profound sense of independence. I do not want to feel that I have to give an account to God one day. I don't want to feel there's somebody watching over me who, will, who maybe will find fault with me, so on, so on, so on. It's all there uh, right here at the beginning. And then fourthly, there was a definite aspect of fear and insecurity. Uh, and you have to say, I mean, fear and insecurity is one of the biggest drivers of aggression and and so on there is and they were they were there was there was a fear that the world could get flood, flooded again you know that we're living on borrowed time that God's done that once he might do it again even though he said that he wouldn't the consequences of that were a number first of all they disobeyed the creation mandate they didn't go forth and and people the earth and spread out on the land and grow the crops and make the earth good they all clubbed together and built a city you think about it, we've been doing that ever since, haven't we, really? Um, so they didn't do that. They, they became increasingly dependent on human government. And I, I could see that happening. Yeah, it was anything in our country today that goes wrong, people say the government should do something. Ever heard that? The government should do something. Put a bit more money in. Where are they going to get it from? Haven't got any money. They've only got our money. We've got the money, they've got to take off somebody else to do it. But that cry goes up. So there's a sense in which we, we, want, we want a government that will actually do what maybe we should be looking for God to do for us. Or maybe we should do it for one another as we're being good neighbours and helping and looking after one another and so on. But that came at the beginning. Dependency on government. And of course, inevitably, as government is, becomes more and more omnipresent and omnipotent, uh, then tyranny and control increase. Bureaucracy increases. And you can trace that history right down through history. Okay. So there was uh, also uh, a consequence was a, a deep sense of hostility towards God. Um, Nimrod wanted his revenge on God to, to sort of poke his finger at heaven and say, not on you. I'm not, I'm, we're not afraid of you. You do what you like and we're not going to worry about it. But the people all, they were all joining in with it. And they were, they were saying, you know, we you don't want to be a chicken and be afraid of God and submit to God. You know, be your own man. Stand independent and free. So I, I felt, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I felt when I looked at this, there are such a lot of lessons that, that apply to both as individuals, but as also society and communities. Uh, now, we didn't find the Tower of Babel. We found that. That's a place called Borsippa, uh, near Babylon, but I think it's about 13 miles away, if I remember rightly. And the, these, these sorts of ruins, I mean, this is much more recent than Babel, but these ruins are all over Mesopotamia, uh, built there in the, in the river valleys. I mean, obviously, uh, many of them are in a less decent condition than that one, but that one, tourists go to that one. 
Um, and, uh, and what you find with these towers is that there was a, an obsessive desire to reach heaven that, that keeps on recurring. So there was a sort of a spiritual drive. That's the common factor. And I gleaned some of the names of some of these towers and I put them in a list there. I thought it would be interesting. One was called the house of the link between heaven and earth. They're, they're trying to reach upward, trying to reach upward. The second one was called the house of the seven guides of heaven and earth. The third one was called the house of the foundation platform of heaven and earth. You can see a bit of a theme developing here, can't you? <laughs> this kind of, this thing, building the these towers. Uh, the last one I'm going to mention was the house of the mountain of the universe. That sounds a little bit pretentious, but you can see that there, there is a kind of a, a profound aspiration to try and get higher, to rise higher, and so on. Okay, so what are then about the scattering? Now, I apologise, it's not a photo, it's just an artwork picture of the Tower of Babel, but some of the, uh, the records and the legends among the peoples I found Fascinating. I'm going to run through a couple of them. First of all, the North American, uh, Maidu Indians, I think that is. Uh, I mean, loads of tribes have got different ones, but this is, this is one. Suddenly in the night, everybody began to speak in a different tongue, except that each husband and wife spoke the same language. So that was good. Doesn't always happen like that, does it? <laughs> so it, it, it indicates that this was a family thing. Families were not split. So families, I would think, almost certainly, all had the same language, uh, according to the Bible, and that seems to be uh, the, the theme here. Uh, and God instructed a leader called Kirksu, who could speak all the languages, and then he called each tribe by name. Now, this is, this is mythical. We don't know, this doesn't fit with the Bible, but you can see there's a certain common theme, and he sent them off in different directions, telling them where they were to dwell. So that's the Indians, the Maidu Indians, Central America. So the ones are North American Indians, these are uh, Central American uh, Aztecs. After the flood, no, no doubt about it, after the flood, a man and a woman escaped in a boat and they landed on a mountain. They had many children who were dumb until the time when a dove made them a gift of languages. We see it's all kind of jimbled up, isn't it? But you can see the kind of, uh, there, there's something real at the back of it. Uh, these differed so much that the children could not understand each other. Don't find that interesting. I mean, it's the same story from loads of different angles. In Europe, the Greeks, for many ages, men lived at peace, without cities and without laws. The Golden Age, before the flood, but of course it deteriorated. Speaking one language and ruled by Zeus alone, God. At last, Hermes introduced diversities of speech, and divided mankind into separate nations. Again, you see some of their own culture coming there. Asia, the Geiko tribe of Burma. Long ago, the people determined to build a pagoda, does it have to be a pagoda in Burma, that should reach up to heaven. And when the pagoda was halfway up to heaven, God came down and confounded the language of the people so that they could not understand each other. And then the people scattered. You have to, there's something. Something happened here, didn't it? I mean, you these are miles, these are geographically miles apart from one another. So what we're looking at, even though we don't still have the bricks of it, we certainly can see the impact uh, within, the, within the culture. Polynesia, the legend that Rata and his three sons, you notice there are three sons here, um, that's a significant, uh, survived a great flood and then they made an attempt to erect a building by which they could reach the sky and see the Creator God. But the, but the God in anger chased the builders away, broke down the building 
and changed the language so that they spoke diverse tongues. And then Babylon itself. This was found by George Smith in the 19th century. The building of this illustrious tower offended the gods. In a night, they threw down what they had built, they scattered them abroad and made strange their speech. So I find that interesting. Now I think you can make a pretty strong case for the fact that it was the Tower of Babel that actually caused the ethnic diversity that there is in the world. It's very interesting. I mean, we're, if that's correct, which I believe it to be, then the world is still affected by that. Loads of problems and societal problems, of course, have come out of that. Loads of wars and tumults and so on have come out of that. But you can see how easily that would have happened. In the beginning, the whole, the whole world was one people, one family, but different mixes of genes. Each family had a different mix of genes. So as the families were separated from one another and then went in different directions, they had a subset of the total gene structure of the human race. They were not different races, they were sub-races of the human race. I mean, if people understood the reality that the Bible says, we wouldn't have racism at all. We're all actually one race. So the families separated, they became clans and tribes and peoples. And you could often find peoples that have come from the same area have got certain similarities, physical and in their nature and so on, that, that indicate that they've come from the same kind of root, uh, each one. It happened here. Gen genetic diversity was then reinforced by the fact that they were separated from one another. They couldn't speak the same languages, so they didn't intermarry again. They didn't remix the genes, you know what I mean? They became permanently separated from one another. They also, of course, were geographically apart from one another. <coughs> and as they separated, of course, uh, the, the different environments they went into selected. So that so people that went into very hot countries increasingly became selected for darker skins so, because then they were protected from the, from the sunlight. People that had paler skins, uh, of course, were the ones that went up into the north and they needed the vitamin D input. So dark-skinned people wouldn't have done very well in the north. Uh, you know, without the sunlight to increase their vitamin D. So you can see that the environment reacting on the scattering had a massive effect on the diversity of the world. I find it really interesting that we've all come from one root, one stock, one people. But of course that, that judgment upon the human race of course brought forth the diversity. Now you could say that's an enrichment and once we understand that we're all from one family that actually can be quite a blessing and we can gain from all the different branches of the one family. What about language itself? Now, I mean, I, it used to be thought by linguists that language evolved, that it's some, you know, no surprise there, uh, that it started off as sort of uggs and errs and, you know, uh, and then sort of gradually, you know, advanced to pass the, could you pass the salt, please? And things like that. Uh, they kind of, you know, in other words, language started from the bottom up. It started very basic sounds that we were able to make. The fact that we got phenomenal equipment actually to articulate both in our mouth, our tongue, our throat and everything else to do that, and we've had that from the beginning, I think is a very interesting thing. But what they've now discovered increasingly is that actually languages do not do that. And, uh, and so we'll have a look at that in a moment. But here's a bit of language. Anybody have a guess what that is? Chinese. Chinese. I, I think that's Chinese. Nobody Chinese here to tell us, so... So we'll say it's Chinese, that's good. Uh, what about that one? 
Yeah, I think it might be Hebrew, it might be Arab. I'm not, I thought Hebrew, and then I thought, oh no, maybe... It, it, it could be one or the other. I'm not totally sure. I think probably Hebrew. Uh, how about that one? It's all Greek to me. Well, you, you know Greek. Um, I mean, I just picked a few with very different uh, scripts. There is a reason for that, and we'll look at that in a moment. There is, there is, it has been estimated there are 6,912 known languages in the world. Remember, that's loads of tribal dialects and loads of things like that that make that up. That doesn't mean that God instantly created 6,912 languages. Uh, because, of course, they've slowly devolved and changed as they've gone along. It's reckoned, and again, I, I'm not an expert in this, there are actually approximately 90 language families. That all those languages can be traced back to the roots of 90. So it seems quite possible that there were 90 original families, or of that order, uh, that received their language at the beginning. But it may be more complicated than that. Um, God gave spoken language, but he didn't give them script, which is why you've got such a huge variety of scripts. It was down to man to actually work out the script that he would have. So some of the very earliest ones that we have are just pictures, you know, hieroglyphics and so on like that. Chinese is still loads and loads of pictures and so on. But obviously somebody thought of using symbols to, to represent sounds and so on and so on and so on. So loads of different scripts, but they were not given in the beginning. They were given, and there are some tribes in the world that when missionaries went out there found they didn't have any written language at all. They had to, well, you, you probably know that, don't you? Uh, they, had, they had to first uh, create a, a dictionary and a grammar and to work out how people spoke it, but nobody ever learnt it. They don't know where they got it from. Uh, next, next one, you know, I put up there, it was, what they've also discovered is that languages have, have, have gone the wrong, they've not evolved, they've devolved, they've gone downwards. They've gone from complicated to simpler and simpler. Yeah, anybody thinks of ancient English, you know, even language of the Old Testament is, is quite hard for us to read. And it, but it's actually, it's not less, it's more. It's more complex. It's got, it's got loads of, it's got second person singular, like thou. We don't use that, we just use you. you know, so we've actually simplified it. So languages with usage tend to simplify. So if you go back, I mean, if you go back to say, I mean, I did New Testament Greek, you wouldn't believe it, I can't remember hardly any of it now. When I was at college, that was 2,000-year-old Greek. It was much more complex than modern Greek. But if you go back to classical Greek, that is even more complex still. So it's been discovered, in fact, that languages start very complicated, with a total syntax, with a total um, dictionary, with a total uh, structure and form to the language that is, frankly, is miraculous. How, would, how did they do that? And the effect of the years has been not to make it more complicated, but to make it simpler. So it's, 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 it's downward evolution, as we find in so other stuff, in biologically as well, indicating that in the beginning, those languages, when they were given, were very well-ordered and complex and incredible, really. And, and how do you teach a whole people to talk a language when you started from scratch, when you haven't got a book, when you don't have a dictionary? How do you, I mean, how do, you, if you don't, how do you teach your children to speak the language if you, don't, if you only just learnt it? Well, 
you know, how do you get started with a language? We've no idea because we've always inherited it from our parents. Well, who started it? Well, the Bible says God did it. God did it miraculously. Now, that is a phenomenal miracle. God is the ultimate communicator. He can speak any language you like. He can structure it, make it, form it, shape it, and then put it into them. Wow, I mean, that is a miracle and a half. I mean, it, it, was, it was that or, or destroy them all again, and God couldn't bear to destroy them all again. So he kind of holds it back and prevents it. Writing then, as we said, was later developed by man, and then separation then, of course, develops new tongues. So as people are isolated from one another, tribes and so on, they start to corrupt the language and so on and so on. It's reckoned that there are 449 Indo-European languages. But remember that Indo-European peoples are scattered from, well, from here to India. Well, from America to India, you know, we're all, all Indo-European are all over the world. That's a major branch of one of the language families of the world, and there are 449. It's estimated of those that have, that have come, but they've often got roots that are similar and compare over. So that's how they can tell that they're language families. So language itself can only really be explained by this event that we're talking about here. So there's loads of indirect evidence. There's also the evidence of empires all over the world. Now that I thought was an interesting map which I found online and uh, you can see the, uh, the, the, the yellow area which is the main area thought to be inhabited in the post-flood period and then the pink bits which are the centres of civilization as far as it can be understood anthropologically. Um, and the ark of course was there roughly in the middle of that big pink bit which is interesting and understandable. So note a few things, first of all the effects of the ice age, the white stuff uh, is the Ice Age as it's reckoned to have developed at its furthest extent, mostly in the Northern Hemisphere. So no major civilizations really uh, early developed up in that area because it was all ice and glaciers and so on. Who wants to go there? Notice there's a big concentration around the Ark, Egypt, Mesopotamia and so on and up into the Caspian and so on. And then notice that many empires start to spread out from that. So it kind of it spawns other gatherings. So that tendency to gather and form another civilization, uh, it, you didn't stop it with, with the Tower of Babel. It just held it back and, and spread it around the world. And of course, that has continued to go on. Okay, number six. So we were up to number six already. That's amazing. Um, we're looking at the ingenuity of the ancients. There's a picture of Stonehenge. Not really going to talk about that, but it illustrates it. I've seen programs on television where they've tried to work out how they did it. I mean, Stonehenge doesn't look complicated, but those, those sarsen stones are really heavy. How did they get them there? How did they stand them up? They've done experiments on telly to try and see how they do it. They, they brought it from somewhere in Wales, I gather, and brought them down there. They put dovetails on the top, so the, the, the top bits. How did they lift the top bits up there and place them on them? Well, I have to say to you, Stonehenge is nothing compared with what we find all over the world, the ingenuity of the ancients everywhere. Examples of a highly advanced civilization that suddenly appears without, it doesn't work up to it, it's suddenly there. And the individuals, they either had massive intelligence or massive strength or both. It's very difficult for us to work out now actually how they did it. It's, it's some of the great mysteries, really, that remain in history. And I really find this fascinating. You know, whenever I can't answer a question how they did it, I think that is amazing. 
I'm really pleased about that. Okay, so uh, this place here is Mohenjo-Daro in Pakistan. You might not have heard of that. One of the early civilizations was in the Indus Valley, um, Indo-European peoples that actually travelled there and formed their civilization. Uh, when you look at that, that looks pretty orderly and, um, and accurate and angular. Uh, it's a major urban area uh, in Pakistan, off, off the beaten track. Um, it's older and more advanced than the surroundings all around it, and it's, it's got sewage and drainage through the city. You know what I mean? When people around it were living in huts, that kind of thing, you've got this stuff here that is way more advanced. So what's happened is civilization has, has, has apparently gone from a high place and is degenerating in many places. Okay, uh, what about the pyramids? Well, we know all about the pyramids and I thought well, there's not much to say about the pyramids, but they're quite amazing in themselves. I mean, the pyramid of Gizeh, well, they're all of precise dimensions and precise orientation, exactly uh, the way that they're apparently meant to be, north, south, east, west, that kind of thing. Uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza has apparently got 2.3 million blocks. Who counted them and how do they know? I don't know, but it's probably a fair guess. It's very, it's extremely big. The average size of those blocks are 2.5 to 15 tonnes each. That is a lot of blocks. They've actually tried to do, they tried to do it on the telly, I remember, to do a pyramid and to work out a way of doing it, and they failed. And they were doing a pyramid that was a tenth of the size. And they allowed themselves weeks to do it, and they actually couldn't do it. I mean, the scale of this is incredible. They've reckoned that with the time that historically was allocated uh, for um, the pyramids, uh, historically in the scripts they, they presumably got a, a record of how long it took them, uh, you would need to do one block every two and a half minutes. How would you, how would you do that? I mean, if, if one person was carrying every block, I mean, I, I can't even begin to imagine. You have to be very strong, or they got a very clever scheme to do it. They knew stuff that we do not know. So even the pyramids, it is admittedly one of the great wonders of the world, but familiar is itself incredible. Uh, what about this in Saskatchewan? I'll say that quick and then you don't know how badly I pronounced it. Um, uh, that's, that's an Inca remains in South America. I mean, I always think that those, they're, they're, they've got a staggering look to them. It does seem a complicated way to build a wall. I, I would have thought it had been easier to just cut out rectangles and cubes and join them that way. But they've got all the weird shapes. They've got a weird shape, right? And they just shape the rock to... How long did it take them to do that? They say that the joints are so close together you can't get a piece of paper in them. Incredibly accurately made. Uh, many of the stones are over 100 tonnes. How did they put them there? Why, why would they do that anyway? Uh, one, I wish I had a photo of this. I read it, but, so I believe it. But it's pretty, one is thought to be 20,000 tonnes. Well, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, obviously, rock's heavy, so it doesn't have to be a huge rock to make 20,000 tons. But of the ancient world, they worked out that the solar year was 365.2420 days. 
I mean, whoever did that must have been really quite some anorak, you have to say, most of you. But they, it's been found that that is an error of point naught, naught, naught two to what we now know to be the, the year of, a, of the, uh, the length of a year. I mean, that's interesting. They also say that they believe creation was just around 4000 BC, which is also a little bit of an interesting thing to plop in there, which fits pretty closely to the biblical thing. Now here is Baalbek in Lebanon. I, I find this amazing. You, you'll see Heliopolis it's called, and you'll see there's a great big platform there. Do you see that, that platform? A rock platform with a number of structures on it. Um, I'll look at each individually in a minute, but the, one of them is the Temple of Bacchus, one's the Temple of Jupiter. They're given Roman names, and some archaeologists think they're Roman, but many think they're actually much too, they're way out of scale for Roman technology. The Romans couldn't do that. The Romans inherited this site and then adopted it, um, and so on. But nonetheless, those are the names of them. And then there's also a, a set called the Trilithon, which just means the three rocks. And uh, if I... Uh, Mark them up there. There's the Temple of Bacchus. That's the one that is the most complete remains. Uh, the Temple of Jupiter. There's only one wall of that standing. And then the Trilithon, uh, you'll see down there, is part of the whole base of it. Uh, there are three rocks there. There are actually others that are almost of similar, similar size, but they are all of them amazing. Uh, there's the, the Trilithon close up. Now, I'm not sure whether it's the lower structure or the upper ones. It could be either. They're all about a thousand tons each. So they are really quite big rocks. I put a man there for scale. Um, and uh, you can see that, well, there you go, I've said all that. Uh, in order to get them in place, they not only had to dress them and accurately cut them to shape, they had to lift them and get them into place. I mean, even getting them up 20 foot off the ground, how would they do that? How would they lift? A thousand tons. We could, we've got not that much equipment that can do that today. Uh, this is the temple of, uh, of Jupiter that we mentioned earlier. There's just one little wall of columns. Um, it's, been, it's reckoned it's been made out of granite from 900 miles away. <laughs> how did they, they travel all that far? Well, they had, they had a lot more travel than we give them credit for. Each section of the columns, you know, columns are usually done in, in barrel-sized barrel uh, sections. Each section is about five to ten tons. It didn't sound much when we were thinking about a thousand tons. But even so, five to ten tons is heavy, and it gets heavier as you go up to the top. You know, how did, they, how did they lift those up there? Get them up there with such accuracy, dressed stones. The towers are 66 foot high and over six foot, the columns that is, six foot in diameter. So they are massive. They are way out of scale of any, any Roman temples that we know to be Roman temples. But note particularly the, the lintel stones on top. How did they get those up there? You know, if you want to give you, build a building like that, they were, they were big or clever. That's the only thing I can come up with. So, and it may be they were both. Uh, here's a stone that didn't get out the quarry. That's again one that's thought to be uh, one of the Trilithon stones or one similar to it. Um, and this one is 1,200 tons. So 1,200 tons stone. 60 foot by 14 foot by 14 foot nearby. So it's pretty certain that those stones came from nearby. <laughs> we would find that quite hard to lift even today. Um, in fact, I did a bit of research. This is about the best 
that Roman technology could come up with in terms of lifting, but it would be nowhere near able to lift 1,200 tonnes. <clears throat> that is the sort of equipment you need to lift 1,200 tonnes. That is a very heavy lifting crane. <clears throat> Not many cranes can lift that kind of thing. The mo the most of the ones that can have to be overhead girder cranes to do it. And <clears throat> maybe that's what they did. Who knows? Okay, last bit. The seed of Babylon. There was a seed planted. This is my, this is what I'm suggesting to you. There was a seed planted in Babylon that was not just political and cultural, but it was also spiritual. And that has transmitted through the world. And I've done it like a bit of a tree, so I thought that would be helpful. So if you start with Babel, <coughs> the empire of Babel uh, then became Babylon. Uh, that would have probably been so after the, after the scattering of the peoples because of the languages. And then Nimrod continued to build his empire and its name changed to Babylon. Uh, the ancient Babylon. But of course, out of that also, as the people scattered, came all these scattering empires that we saw on the map earlier. So Egypt was a very early one. Pakistan was a very early one. China traces its origins right back uh, to the flood and, and it's got all kinds of things in Chinese language that refer to it and even go back to the Garden of Eden. Assyria then, uh, so you've got this initial spread out, but then I'm going to concentrate on what was happening because the seed of Babylon seems to stay in that area. So there are a whole series of empires that, that conquer one another. So Assyria conquered Babylon and so on and so on. South America came later because, of course, they had to go over the land bridge of Alaska and travel down to that. So they're, generally speaking, not as early as these earlier ones here. Then it went up to Neo-Babylonia. That's Nebuchadnezzar and his crew. We've gone quite a bit of time by now. We've gone a thousand years plus uh, to get to that Persia, the Persians conquered the, the Babylonians, and then the Greeks under Alexander conquered the Persians, and then the Romans, of course, conquered the Greeks. And, uh, and then the Romans' uh, empire was split into two halves, the Roman Western Empire and the Byzantine Empire, which was the Eastern Empire. So Rome became the dominant empire, Rome, Western Rome fell under the impact of the Germanic tribes in Europe in only 440 AD. The Byzantium carried on for considerably longer, of course, until another thousand years into that. So out of that came the Russians. The Russians didn't really form an empire, except it was an empire in itself. It was so big, you know, it kind of, it didn't have to go and find any more land. It already had more land probably than it could handle. But you get the Russian, you get the French. Uh, all of these came out of Rome. Rome spawned Europe. And out of Europe, you've got a whole series, the Germans, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the Dutch, and the British. I put the yellow ones because the yellow ones were the most empire-minded of all the uh, European civilizations. And all of them formed their own empires. And I mean, interestingly, uh, Rome brought Europe, and Europe conquered the world, pretty much. I mean, it had a bit of a job with China because China was an older one that had already been going there. You know, and it never really, well, the Spanish uh, destroyed the empires of South America and the Portuguese and so on. So the, uh, the empires of Europe conquered over into Americas and really pretty much all over the world. So the, the, the seed of Babel and of Babylon has never died. And it's actually still going. Uh, even in the world today. 
Europe then colonised the world and, uh, and, and spread, uh, I was going to say the infection, but that's probably too strong a word for it, but spread uh, everywhere. Uh, that's, that's Shanghai in China, so China is now rapidly catching up and becoming as much an empire as everybody else. I mean, it always has been a pretty mighty empire. But you can draw a line then from Babel right the way to today, where we've already said Europe colonised the world. Each empire, in a sense, tries to reverse Babel. They teach everybody to speak the same and be the same. You know, we spread, we spread the English language all over the world. The French spread French all over the world. The Dutch spent Dutch all over the world. They didn't do it very well because not that many people speak Dutch, but you know what I mean? All these empires spread their languages so that increasingly the world now can be understood with few languages. There are only just a few languages. I mean, will it come back to one language as it was in the beginning? Will we eventually have completely reversed what God did? You know what I mean? It started with one language, God gave many languages, and we're moving slowly back to fewer and fewer languages and increasingly to one language. Probably have to be English because we don't, we don't learn languages very well. <laughs> but I mean, that's a bit of a joke. Um, okay, uh, now alongside that, of course, there's a whole lot of other factors that are happening today that indicate that we are living in spiritually very significant times. There's worldwide transport. You can run to and fro on the earth, as the prophet Daniel said. There is international business. I mean, the fact that I can do this and put it on YouTube and somebody can watch this in Australia or China, I mean, might not understand. Oh no, they probably will in China. They're all learning English in China, so we're okay there. But I mean, the fact that you can do that is because of massive corporations, hugely powerful, almost more powerful than governments really, all over the world, and prestigious high buildings everywhere. It does sound familiar. Like we're, we're you know, we're kind of, we're, we're like, we're Babel on steroids today. And, uh, and with that, the implication may be that eventually there will have to come global control. And many people, not Christians, believe that that will come. I mean, the Bible does say it will come. Uh, because if you've got a world that is, um, that is not globally controlled, that's, that's why you know, nobody wanted Britain to go out of Europe, because we are mucking up the, we're mucking up the thing. What are you doing? You know, we're supposed to be moving towards one one people, one, you know what I mean? But as we know now already, it's not always a good thing to all be together as one people. And may it be ultimate tyranny. The Bible says in the end uh, that the Antichrist will arise and people will not be able to buy and sell without his permission. Well, it seems to me that from what we learn of Babel, that is not at all impossible. Europe probably illustrates that, and these are my last final thoughts. That poster... Uh, was produced in June 2016. And you'll notice the slogan at the bottom, Europe, many tongues, one voice. And do you notice the building that is in the centre of that poster? That, does that look familiar to anybody? The Tower of Babel. Uh, so Europe are definitely going right out there and saying, we're going to reverse it. Okay, we're, we're, we're going to reverse what's happened. I mean, there are some other interesting things, and what I find interesting is there are so many spiritual illusions that are quite high profile um, that, you, that not everybody would notice, but they're out there and they're visible. I mean, the stars around the thing, of course, 
uh, was taken from the book of Revelation, the 12 stars of Europe was not for 12 countries. It was the 12 stars believed to be, I think it's a wrong interpretation, believed to be around the crown of Mary. So Europe was dedicated to the Virgin Mary, who is often called the Queen of Heaven, which is another interesting illusion. But that particular poster had all the stars upside down in the shape of pentagrams, which is a sign of the, that is the official sign of the Church of Satan. <laughs> you know, now you think, well, how far do you take this? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, so, so not only is there, are there some very specific messages that are coming through this, uh, it seems to me that you have to say that the, the fact there are so many spiritual illusions means that man knows what he's doing. We, uh, we you know, we're not, it's, out, it's hiding in plain sight what is happening and what is going on, but in my opinion, I have no, no doubt about it that, the, that what happened all those years ago is not irrelevant to what is happening today. And a journalist actually asked um, somebody at the EU in authority if they realised that there were all these messages coming through, and apparently they are. It's not an accident. They do know it. In fact, I mean, there was such an outcry at that poster that they actually did withdraw it. Um, but it's interesting that it's out there, and you can find it all over the internet. If we go back to the Tower of Babel, we'll last finally, and then compare it with the EU Parliament headquarters, you have to say that that's also very interesting. They have actually, I mean, they've spent a lot of money, uh, 500 million euros, to, to build a building that doesn't look finished. Because it's deliberately imaged on the painting by Peter Bruegel of the Tower of Babel. So you have to say that somebody in Europe has read their Bible, but they've unfortunately not drawn the right conclusions from it. They're deliberately designed to actually look like it. So there is a message going. So Europe is maybe, it may be that Europe has a particular place in the end times. It may well be. But it's certainly a very good example that the seed of Babylon is still living. It's not, uh, it's not gone. Uh, not only that, uh, they've got the image outside the Brussels um, Parliament building, because they've got one in Brussels and one in Strasbourg, the Brussels, of a woman on a beast, uh, a bull. Of course, it's the, it's the Europa um, uh, myth, where Europa was, was taken by a bull who was the god Zeus, who was, in, uh, who was uh, uh, hiding, and uh, he took her away and ravished her and raped her. And, what? and I thought, how did Europe get that name? Why was Europe named Europe? I mean, okay, it was a Greek myth, but why did they pick that myth to choose it? I have no idea. I mean, as far as I know, it goes back hundreds of years, generations. But of course, the symbol of it, which is really now being majored on, is a woman on a beast, which is, which is you have to say, is interesting, because in Revelation 17, 3 to 5, it says, there I saw a woman. Now, it's not exact, I understand that. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, and its title was written on her forehead, forehead Babylon the Great, the mother of the abominations of the earth. So, I mean, is, is Europe trying to say something? Well, I don't know. But you have to, you have to say, it does make you think. You do need to keep your eyes open. So there are multiple spiritual allusions today to Babylon. 
often subtle. The, the man in the street would probably not think anything of them, and maybe I'm a bit paranoid. But you have to say, to me, they do seem significant. Revelation 18 is a lament for Babylon. So we started in Genesis chapter 11, way back. We've now got to Genesis 18. So this is, you have to say, this is a massive theme. I mean, and a lot of people probably don't even know anything about it. A lot of Christians don't know anything about it. The theme of Babylon and the, and the, and the, and, and the significance of organised man in rebellion towards God. That, that, is the, that seems to me the gist of it. From the beginning and all the way through, the more we organise, the more we unite, the more it tends to corrupt us and leads to all the sort of things that, uh, that Flavius Josephus saw 2,000 years ago. Uh, increasingly a hostility um, towards a God that we actually don't believe in. And that's the irony of modern man. We don't really believe in God, but, but if scratched under the surface, we find we're quite hostile towards God. That was the same right at the beginning. The seed, therefore, has travelled through history, moving the world back again towards a global civilization. So there is a kind of neatness about that, a global civilization that is deeply hostile to God. Well, now, how do you prepare for that? Uh, the, o- the only answer that I could come up with is be informed. I mean, generally speaking, we are not able to move the affairs of nations. This is not a thing that a, that a strong prayer meeting is going to shift. I'm not even sure that a revival of Christianity would shift it. It seems to me that the stage is set and events are moving towards their goal. But we do need to be informed so that we're not swept along by it. The point is men become willing participants in it all. I voted, against, I voted for Brexit for one reason and one reason only, because I, I do not believe in global civilization, and I believe that the enemy does and I want to stand against it in any way I can. In little ways we may make our demonstrations, but we do need to be informed. We need to study and think and ponder. So, no surprise here. Here's a small advert for series two, number four, the final return. You could do a lot worse than watching the whole way up course through, actually, if you haven't already done it, in order to kind of to stimulate you and feed your understanding of the Word of God. In the next few weeks, we should carry on and try and look at the way that God has impacted in the history of man and that often under the surface of events, there are profound spiritual things happening. Bless you all. We've made it. We've come to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you. It is. Thank you, Lord, that your revelation is true. And even with our limited resources, we can piece stuff together and begin to see what's happening. And we pray that you'd help us all to grapple with these things, to not be lazy-minded, but to actually grapple and sort it out and get answers and to set our course to be, to be pleased with you. Lord, we don't want to be rebels. We don't want to be joining the rebels, those that that turn away from God. We want to give our lives to, to do good and to, and to spread the kingdom and to seek uh, righteousness in an increasingly uh, 
challenging world. So, Father, hear our prayer now, because we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, good. Okay, this is, this is the question that we've got so far. If any, if any get a spontaneous question, or you want to come in with a comment or something that you've thought of, by all means do. Uh, this is the question. If language is devolving, i.e. running down, and not adapting, or I suppose getting better, uh, is there a danger that the older books in the Bible have been diluted, been simplified, and lost some of their original impact and or meaning? It's an interesting question. I think it, I think it probably means, to some extent, do, are the more modern versions, to some extent, is that what you're thinking, Mike? More modern versions, more colloquialized more fitted and lose some of the deeper meaning that was in original words. I think, I mean, there is, a, there is a very strong school of thought in that direction, and I have to say I'm moving that way myself. Not least because of understanding this, that some of the, the older versions, because a lot of scholars want to go back to the original Greek and the Hebrew and the original languages, um, but then, of course, you've still got to put them into modern parlance. But if modern, if modern language is, is degenerating, then, of course, it may be increasingly difficult to get our heads around some of these concepts. So that is an issue. And I would say probably the best answer to that is to have as many versions of the Bible as you can. I mean, Debbie and I, we often read out of a, a, a New King James um, and NIVs we use. So we use different versions of the Bible, and I would recommend that, particularly if you've, got a, if you've got a bit of text that is critical. You know, there are some bits where there'd be a critical bit, and you, you know, you want to look at it and check it with several versions to try and get an accurate sense of it. But I think, yes, that is a real possibility. Good. Well, that's our, that's our question for, the, for tonight. Next week, we're looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, that of all the places uh, that we're looking at, this is the one place that I've actually been to. So I can bring personal testimony back from there. Um, so that'll be next week, Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll be looking at. But hopefully you'll see they're all kind of linked and connected together with an ongoing narrative of God's activity, trying to, uh, trying to get men and women into shape and to live the way he chooses for us to live, which is the only way to live at the end. Great, thank you all. Bless you. Good night. Well, thank you. That's two claps.